Wicking Vicar is known for making high-quality, comfortable clerical shirts that make great gifts for pastors. But did you know Wicking Vicar also has great gifts for your little Lutherans? Just in time for Advent, you can get a wooden Advent wreath playset to help kids learn about Christ's incarnation. You can also pick up a wooden baptismal candle playset to celebrate your kid's baptismal birthday and teach them to sing, God's own child, I gladly say it, I am baptized into Christ. Visit wickingvicar.com to see these gifts. That's W-I-C-K-I-N-G-V-I-C-A-R dot com. Hey ladies, just a heads up. This episode contains discussion and description of abortion, miscarriage, and other topics relating to sex and pregnancy. Listener discretion is advised. And now, on to this important conversation. Listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree. And I'm Rachel. Today we have another lady joining us in the Ladies Lounge. We've had a lot of guests lately, which has been really nice to have a lot of different perspectives on different issues going on in our world today. And today we get to talk about women's health and all of the different facets surrounding that large topic. So joining us is Dr. Donna Harrison, board certified OBGYN and CEO of APLOG, which is the American Association of Pro-Life Obstetricians and Gynecologists. Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for joining us today. Hey, thanks for asking me. So we have a whole list of questions for you. We'll see how much we get to today. And a lot of these were actually crowdsourced from mm-hmm. our Lutheran Ladies Lounge Facebook group. So this is a, kind of a group effort from a lot of other women, not just the four of us coming up with these questions. So I hope this is going to be a really interesting conversation. But before we get into any of that, can you share your story with us of how you became an OBGYN? Sure. I'll make it kind of a short story because I could take a long time. <laughs> but uh, but I've always been interested in science and in college, met the love of my life who was going into medical school. And I thought, hey, I could do that. So I, uh, <laughs> I applied with him to make it even kind of more interesting. We actually thought we were going to take a couple of years off before we went to medical school. But Mark's dad said, no, no, if you take a couple of years off, you'll never go. So We only applied to the five schools that we thought we could never get into, and we got into all of them. So, (laughs) well, I should say the the two that we completed the whole process for. And so we did end up both going to medical school together, and then we split the field of medicine. My husband did uh, internal medicine, pediatrics, and then infectious diseases, and I did OBGYN. So that's how I became. I just, I felt in love with OBGYN, as soon as I saw my first delivery, I'm like, mm. this is the best. Mm-hmm. Here, the beginning of life coming into the world, not the beginning of life, the beginning of life where we can recognize the baby and this is where we all came from. And it's just fascinating. And I, I've never gotten over that fascination. Mm. I didn't know we'd be getting a like romantic love story. That's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> My heart is fluttering right now. You're in love with your brilliant <laughs> yeah, husband, like- your own, and then your own field. And you're right. That miracle of life is yeah. something that if you get to witness it, it changes you for always, I think. Yeah. 
Yeah, I was I was just suddenly thinking about and now I don't remember her name, but who was our who was our story time with Sarah character who was like the frontier doctor? Dr. Bessie. Yes, that's who I suddenly thought of. I don't know why. Bessie I Ray Winkle. Story related to medical. Yes. Maybe that's it. <laughs> yes. Dr. Harrison, can you tell us what the world was like when you first started practicing as an OBGYN and how what what are the big ways in which it has changed since you first graduated from medical school? So, yes, I can. So I graduated from medical school in 86, which was a while ago. So that tells you how old I am. Uh, But I graduated in 86. And at that time, the training programs really had an emphasis on making a diagnosis, you know, figuring out what was wrong. And the emphasis in obstetrics was less than a 5% C-section rate. That was our goal. So 95% of women with a vaginal delivery. So we were well trained in how to help a woman have a vaginal delivery. And the C-sections were reserved for those cases where you just really couldn't do it. One of the things that has dramatically changed, and I don't think for the better, is that there are places in the country that have a 30 to 40% C-section rate. That's that's terrible. There there are ways to help a woman be able to have a vaginal delivery and not not have to resort to C-section. But I think that's that's one of the ways in which I think obstetrics has not improved. Mm. And then the other, the other thing that's happened in obstetrics is there was a vision, even though it was after Roe versus Wade, there was still the vision in obstetrics that you had two patients. And we were quite proud of considering the human being in the womb as our second patient. So yes, we have the mom there, but we also have the baby. And any decisions, considerations were made with both of those people in mind. But unfortunately, because of a ideological push at the top from our national, uh, the, the biggest national organization, American College of Obstetricians, Gynecologists, that push has been to look at only the mom mm. and to completely obliterate the view of the human being in her womb as a second patient. It's tragic mm. because that's what made obstetrics so wonderful that you have two patients and you're caring for both. And you see them both in a mutually beneficial, mutually caring relationship. Now the view is that somehow pregnancy is a disease that needs to be eliminated. And I think that's, that's a huge impoverishment that's happened in obstetrics and gynecology. Yeah, I, I think I've seen that too in, in my own life. When at the first prenatal visit, you're sat down and and they ask, the, the nurse pulls out her clipboard and starts going to the, through the questions and wants to know immediately, was this pregnancy planned or unplanned? Well, <laughs> and I remember, and one wow. of our, one of our, I think maybe our last of four children, looking at her oddly and saying, well, do I have to choose one of those? Because I feel like th- those are very limited categories. And that if I say unplanned, you're going to immediately assume that it's unwanted. And I don't no. want you getting that assumption because you're right that there was this sort of feeling like I was the patient and the tiny human being inside was kind of a trespasser that could stay if I decided that, you know, he or she was welcome. <laughs> well, that's right. And I, th- I think that is really a, a horrifically impoverished way to look at this beautiful event that only women can experience. We are the place where, where life happens. We are the place that God's chosen to 
create new human beings, to create the next generation. And it's wonderful. And, and we are healed by that relationship, as is the human being in, their, in our womb. Mm. And, and I think when you catch the magic and you catch the beauty of two people in a very intimate, close, physical bond that love each other, I think it's, it's a wonderful vision. And I think it's a vision that would help us as we go through, and especially even difficult pregnancies. You know, that whole idea of wanted versus unwanted. What in the world does that mean? I mean, how many of us <laughs> want to be pregnant when we're throwing up at two in the morning? I, I, I'm a, I've been pregnant nine times. I've, got, I've delivered six. I have five living children. It's, there are parts of the pregnancy that are very difficult, but that doesn't mean I don't want the human being in my womb. Mm-hmm. So it's very different to say, am I looking forward to all the aspects of pregnancy? Well, maybe not. But am I tremendously grateful that I have a, a human being that I'm going to be, that I am already in relationship to? I, I just think it's the beauty of the mother-baby bond. It's just something that we need to embrace as, as Lutherans. Mm-hmm. Yes. Some parts of pregnancy are very unpleasant, but I would not give up the experience for anything. One reason I think we're so keen to have this conversation with you now, and I think it's regrettable that it should be this way, but your profession, your calling has been kind of politicized. I'm sure you're aware. (laughs) But obviously, there's a lot of conversation about women and babies I mean, throughout my whole life, Roe v. Wade happened before I was born. But what was, what was your reaction when you heard this past spring as an OBGYN that Roe had been overturned by the Supreme Court? Well, first of all, I thought it would never happen in my lifetime. But mm-hmm. the second thing I thought is, well, it's time now to roll up our sleeves because the work has really begun. And I knew that with Dobbs overturning Roe, it's not that abortion was made illegal. As a matter of fact, what happened is that with Roe, 50 years ago, the conversation about whether abortion was a good thing or not that was happening in all the states was shut down. Mm. And Roe Ro put a stop to any further conversation saying, you cannot make any laws that protect this human being in the womb, period. And the reason they did that is through a, a second decision that was issued at the same time called Doe. Roe and Doe were issued at the same time. So Doe versus Bolton defined health. And Roe said, you have to have a health exception all through pregnancy. Well, when Doe defined health, they said it's any physical, psychological, social, familial, or any other reason. So Doe is what actually legalized abortion throughout pregnancy. And we're currently having this discussion, not in one place now, but in 50 places, (laughs) in every state in the union. So I knew that the work of APLOG, American Association of Pro-Life OBGYNs, would multiply by 50, and it has. Mm. So we're being called on to give a pro-life OBGYN second opinion to ACOG, you know, because ACOG is rabidly pro-abortion. I mean, insanely pro-abortion. And we're being called on to give a balanced scientific opinion as to what happens with abortion for moms and what happens to the human being in their womb. and now we're in pro-life states, we're, we're being called on to defend and to explain, you know, what abortion is. And in pro-abortion states, we're being called on for the same thing, but 
to challenge laws that are being passed that are even more radically pro-abortion. Mm-hmm. I actually have a question that I'll ask sort of along those lines of like terms and that sort of thing. And this came from one of the people in the Facebook group. When you use the term abortion, is there more than one definition of that? For example, a medical abortion, how you would use that term in the medical profession versus how we hear about it used in the news and the media. And is there any difference to how, for example, how we as just Lutheran lay people understand the term abortion? And if there is any nuance there, do we use any different terminology in cases of, you know, where a baby would die before birth or ectopic pregnancy where it can't come to term? Do you use the same term for everything? I don't know. I guess I want to want to get into some vocabulary before we go any further. That's a great question. What is abortion? <laughs> I, am, yeah. I am so glad you asked that question, because one thing that we were not prepared for was the absolute insanity and misinformation and confusion that's being spread around right now. Yeah. So yeah. when you talk about abortion, there are actually about 16 different medical definitions. OK, so mm. it's a terminator in terms of trying to be clear about what you're talking about. So when the states like Texas ban abortion, they're very specific as to what they're, they're banning. And what they're banning are procedures that are done for the specific purpose of killing a human being in the womb. And what is not an abortion under the, for example, the Texas law, they explicitly say treatment of a miscarriage is not abortion. Treatment of an ectopic pregnancy is not an abortion. Use of contraception is not an abortion. So, and separating the mom and the baby in order to save the mom's life is also not an abortion. So, we have to be absolutely clear about what we're talking about. I think a better terminology for us to be using is the term feticide, because people understand mm. homicide, fratricide. Mm. Okay. And what we're talking about is a procedure done for the purpose of feticide. Why can I say that? There's two legal reasons. One, when the partial birth abortion hearings were being held by the Supreme Court, they asked the abortionists, why do you deliver this baby all the way to the point where the head is the only thing left inside the mom? Why don't you just complete the delivery? And the abortionist answered, because the product we're paid to produce is a dead baby. That's the product we're paid to produce. And to underline that, the second point is that if an abortion as we use that term in, in common speech, if an abortion is done after the baby can survive outside the womb, say 32 weeks, and the baby's born alive, it's a failed abortion. The separation mm-hmm. from the mom did not fail to occur. What failed to occur is the baby failed to die. So mm-hmm. in order to think about abortion, what you have to do is think about pregnancy in two different categories. One, when a baby can survive outside of the mom's womb, that's 22 weeks or after, then there is zero zilch nada reason to ever, ever, under any circumstances, do an abortion because you do a delivery. That's what mm-hmm. OBGYNs do. We do vaginal deliveries. We do C-sections. That's what you do when the baby can survive outside because we deliver the baby, we separate the mom and the baby under conditions where both of them have the best chance of survival. That's the point. Now, before 22 weeks, when the baby can't survive outside the womb, you have situations where you do have to separate the mom and the baby, knowing that 
the baby's not going to survive. But if you don't, the mom is not going to survive. And if the mom doesn't survive and you haven't separated, the baby doesn't survive either. So if you lose two or you lose one, it's horrible, but it happens. And all of us pro-life OBGYNs have been in that circumstances with infection or bleeding, which we, or preeclampsia. We hate to do it, but we don't, you, you have to separate the mom and the baby to save the mom's life. And we would argue that is not an abortion because if we could save the baby, we would. Our intent in those circumstances is not feticide. Our intent in those circumstances is to save both if we could, but at least to save one. So that's the difference between a life-saving separation and an abortion. So an abortion is any procedure done for the purpose of producing a dead baby. Okay. Now, let's take a step back. What about a miscarriage? Baby's already died. Okay, so when the baby's already died, there is no chilling the baby into the womb. Baby's already died. So even though we call it a spontaneous abortion, which is a horrible term, but that's the term we live with. Okay, even though we call it that, it's it's a miscarriage. The baby's already died. That's not an abortion. And there's not a single state in the entire nation that bans miscarriage treatment, ectopic mm-hmm. treatment, or separating the mom and the baby to save the life of the mom. All of this baloney salami that's being circulated in the media about, oh, women can't get treatment for ectopic pregnancy, it's all completely ridiculous. And, and it's a complete lie. Because like I said, I've reviewed the vast majority of laws in the country about abortion, and not one single one bans separating the mom and the baby to save her life. Not one single one bans ectopic pregnancy treatment or miscarriage care. What these Laws ban is very explicitly procedures done to kill a living human being in the womb for the purpose of killing that living human being in the womb. That's that's really good clarification. Yeah, it's very helpful. Uh, I know, yeah, there were so many things that were happening immediately after the decision came from the Supreme Court. So much of that misinformation that you were talking about with all of these stories, whether or not they were true. I mean, it's social media, so it's it's hard to tell sometimes what actually is true and what people are just making up. But so many things about what the term abortion means, how it's being used, especially with the the spontaneous abortion term being used for miscarriage. I think a lot of women were like, well, wait, did I actually have an abortion and I didn't know it? Like there's mm-hmm. there's all of this, all of this stuff that kind of gets really confusing for women when they're going through something that can be traumatic. It's a confusing thing to deal with. And you know, I can understand why women are confused. It, it makes sense because the terminology is confusing. But there is no reason for a physician to be confused. There's a mm-hmm. reason we went through yeah. four years of medical school and four years of residency. Yeah. And especially OBGYN training, it is to think very clearly about both the mom and the human being in her womb and how we treat them. So there is no excuse for a physician not acting in an appropriate way. Mm-hmm. How do you, as an OBGYN, communicate this to patients who would come in confused, who may have you know, soaked up misinformation yeah. about the nature of pregnancy? Have you been asked to perform feticides? And how do you handle that? Yeah, so... It is very hard for women, and I, my heart goes out to the women who are listening to social media or the regular media and thinking that, oh my goodness, did I have an abortion? But the mm-hmm. fact is, if 
your baby died in your womb, then that's not an abortion as we, as we speak about it. It's a miscarriage. And the huge difference is there's nothing you did to produce that miscarriage. If you have an ectopic pregnancy, that is not an abortion. That's a situation where you had to be separated from your baby because ectopic pregnancies grow and then they rupture and then you both die. So in those cases, and if you have a situation, and I know this has been around the media, where you were hemorrhaging or you had a bad infection or the baby started to come you know, without anything that you did, that's not an abortion either. That is situations where you have to be separated from the baby, again, with infection or bleeding or where there's life-threatening situations. We have no choice. We have to, we have to try to save you. And if your baby isn't beyond 22 weeks, there's just really nothing that we can do to save the baby. So I try to explain that to women, especially women that are hurting and confused. And I think it's something that we would do well to be able to explain to our, you know, to our, to our sisters mm-hmm, uh, mm-hmm. in the Lutheran Church so that, so that we relieve them of a, a guilt that they don't have. They, there's nothing, they're not guilty for an ectopic pregnancy or, or a miscarriage. And, and by relieving them of that guilt, we free them to come forward and let us grieve with them. Right. Yeah. Right, exactly. it, it, it isn't a guilty, shameful thing. It is an incredibly sad thing. But yeah. those sadnesses can be born together, ideally, you know, in the church. You know, if I, could, if I could say one more thing, I think even in cases where women have had abortions and they knew it, and they, they intentionally had an abortion, there is so much pressure on women to abort. And most of these women are in situations where they were, they, they felt like they didn't have any choice. In fact, some of the saddest things I've ever read in the medical literature were reading stories of women who were in the abortion clinic rubbing their abdomen and talking to their babies. And mm-hmm. women who, uh, there's one quote from a woman who said, oh, I was free to choose anything as long as I chose to abort. So <sighs> this is not what we understand. I mean, we can if you've never had an abortion, you an abortion in the terms that I'm talking about, the intentional destruction of a human being in the womb. If you've never had that, then it's tempting to say, oh, how could anyone ever choose it? But if you think about the life circumstances of women who do choose to, to abort, most of the time, they feel like they don't have any other choice. They just mm-hmm. feel like they can't face this baby alone. And in fact, I think this is some place where the church really needs to step up and we really need to do some soul searching about how we talk to our kids about what life's about. Because if you look at situations where where women choose to abort, almost all the time, they're by themselves. They don't have the father of the baby around. Either he's not physically around or he's not supportive or they're in a situation where they have been intimate and now they're pregnant. And what are they going to do? They don't feel like they can bring this baby to birth and, and raise this baby. So we need to be talking about the heroic decision to adopt, the heroic decision to continue this pregnancy and then surround these girls with love and compassion. But we also need to talk to the girls in catechism and the guys in catechism to say, look, the purpose of sexuality is to bring new life, the next generation into the world. And so before you have sex, you might want to think about the context and 
what is actually, why have we been given this gift of sexuality? It's to bond us together in a lifelong relationship, one man, one woman, and to have a family. That's, that's why we've been given this gift. So if we abuse that gift, it just brings death and sadness. And I think we, we might want to consider teaching that a little more in catechism class so that our kids aren't confused about why we have this gift of sexuality. And this is one of the things that has really saddened me in the OBGYN profession is the view of pregnancy as a disease. Mm-hmm. Pregnancy is <laughs> not a disease. It's that, that human being's a gift. Yeah. And, and it, the circumstances of the gift may be unperfect. That baby is still a gift. That human being is still a gift. And I think we need to kind of think about what does being gifted with children mean? And, and if we care about those people that the Lord has given us and put the closest in our life, then maybe we would think about the context under which we're receiving that gift. What are some ways we can, I don't know, maintain that balance mm. between teaching morality and what we believe about the sixth commandment and all of these biblical teachings about sexual purity and refraining from sexual immorality and the right understanding of that, but at the same time demonstrating that we do believe that children are a gift regardless of their circumstances and and forgiveness and mercy that happens to maybe the way that the child was conceived, mm. but not the child itself. Yeah. Well, that's, boy, that's a theological question. And it's, probably, <laughs> it's probably beyond what I can, what I can talk to as a physician of what. But I, maybe just as a different lady, I mean, your own, okay. your own perspective well, on that. Yeah. How do you, how do you wish that conversations in the church about yeah. sexuality and abortion and, you know, childbirth, how do you wish that they were maybe different than they are? Mm, yeah. Well, I, I have to tell you, I'm spoiled. I, I was at, <laughs> <laughs> my, my kids were raised in Pastor Suckwich's church in South Bend, oh. Indiana. And oh, that's a good church. Was, it, was a good, it, it is a good church. And he was very forthright in catechism class, basically saying, you know, the reason that God gave us this gift of sexuality is because he loves us and he puts us in a context where we can love each other. And if we abuse that gift, then we get in situations where we hurt each other. So to have sex outside of the context, the, the safeguard of a mutual, loving, protective relationship is to hurt ourselves and to hurt other people, mm-hmm. including the people we have sex with and the children that are conceived. So I think we have to like wrap our head around what does it look like to to live in love? And I think living in love isn't just like being nicey nicey all the time. I think living in love involves, you know, self-control. And l- let me take it out of the context of sexuality, which is always a difficult one. <laughs> what if we what if we were what if we were talking about gossip in the church? Okay. Hmm. Breaking the, the eighth commandment, you know, the putting the best construction on things. Wouldn't it be good for us to teach that we we put the best construction on things because to not do that hurts our neighbor? And I think if we took it in the same way, to have sex outside of marriage, outside of a committed marriage, hurts our neighbor, hurts all of our neighbors, and it it even hurts ourselves because it makes it more difficult. If you look at if you look at the studies of people who have had multiple partners, what you find is that. The people who have had one partner in their lifetime have sex more often, enjoy it more for a longer period of time than women who have multiple partners. Because when you 
make that intense bond and then you break it and you make another intense bond. It's not, it's not quite so intense. And then you break it and then you make another intense bond. It's not quite so intense. And then you break it. It becomes difficult to do the kind of bonding that was meant to happen. One man, one woman for life. Mm -hmm. That's a beautiful vision. (laughs) Going back, because I know our, our listeners are going to be very keen to hear us talk about this with everything that is on our ballots for this fall, mm-hmm. what would be your best case scenario for what happens in our country? And so how do you, okay, two versions of this question. <laughs> <laughs> First version is, how do you see the Roe v. Wade story ending? And how would you like to see it end? <laughs> Which I realize are two very different questions. (laughs) Well, let's let's look historically at slavery. Yeah, I don't know how many of you um, uh, have seen the movie Amazing Grace about William Wilberforce. No, no, it's on my it's on my to watch list, but I have not seen it yet. (laughs) I'm showing my age. It's an excellent movie, and what what happens at the end of the movie is that the slave trade is outlawed, and that's that's in the 1800s. Okay. But was slavery ended? No, we had to actually have a heart change for that to end. Okay, so in states where you see laws against abortion, you're also going to see a whole bunch of women who are tempted to use self-abortion pills mm-hmm. that are available on the internet. So what has to happen is there has to be a heart change where we actually value that human being and the woman. We value our family. And we value the suffering and the self-sacrifice that it takes to make a family work because the only thing worse than living with another sinful human being is living with yourself also who's another (laughs) sinful human being. So two sinful human beings living together, it's tough, but boy, can it be beautiful. And to embrace that beauty and say, wow, you know, God may gift us with more human beings that because he loves us. And so... I think it's going to take a heart change, and I think it's going to take a change of attitude in the Lutheran Church, in in my church, because I'll I'll tell you, unfortunately, sometimes the attitude can be kind of challenging. And I'll give you a personal story. So when I had my first baby after about four or five years of infertility, I was delighted. I had lots of people saying congratulations. And when I had my second baby... People were happy. When I had my third baby, people were saying, don't you know how that happens? Oh, and when no. I had my fourth baby, then they were really saying that. I mean, I was getting some funny looks from colleagues. And finally, I got so I got so tired of that question. I said, yeah, I do. Do you want me to tell you about it? And, you know, that kind of <laughs> shut people up. So, so I think the attitude is that, well, one's great and two's okay. But after that, we need to stop. Say, say no to this gift. And I think we could do some introspection and say, why are we saying that about a gift of God, especially when God loves life and he loves people? And why would we be happy to receive what he has to give us? So mm-hmm. that's, I think that is the only way we're going to see an end of abortion. So we have to really start thinking about what is the purpose and meaning, the deeper meaning of sexuality. And what, mm. what does it mean for a relationship with God to, to worship him in that way, to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, as we're encouraged to do? Mm-hmm. 
There's a lot of these abortion propositions and questions happening for our midterm elections. Uh, as the time, as of as of this uh, recording time in late October, there's a, a lot of these questions that I'm hearing on the news. Things that are coming back up. The quote unquote fight isn't over yet, for sure. What are some things that women in states where this will be on their ballot in November? What are some things that women I don't know can be can be looking for on the ballot or talking to their neighbors about? for these propositions that will be coming up to protect abortion in certain states? Well, never forget what abortion is. It's the intentional killing of a human being in the womb. And that does not go well. My husband and I happen to have been reading Jeremiah, a very good reading, read Lamentations. It doesn't end well when we, when we kill each other, especially we kill children in the womb. So I think, I mean, I'm not a politician, but I, I do feel like this particular election is what we call a hysterixis event. And what that means, it means something that will change the course of history. Mm-hmm. So if we as a nation embrace child sacrifice, if we as a nation embrace the killing of human beings in the womb, that doesn't bode well for the continuing of the country. If we as a nation say, look, we're going to value every human, every human being at all stages of life, then I think we have a chance to continue as a nation. But it will be very interesting to see what happens to the states that, and the people in the states where abortion is embraced and the people in the states where life is embraced. It should be a very interesting difference in the two, in the two states. What are some ways that we can support our sisters who are facing unplanned pregnancies. I don't want to say unwanted. That's I, I really don't like that term. But unplanned things that they weren't expecting to face in order to kind of change hearts around us so that we can create this culture of life with the people around us. Because, I mean, we've talked about it already that so often it's a view that we have of like, oh, this is going to be too hard, so I can't do it. Yeah. Um, and, we, and we hear that so much from the media. What are some ways that we support our sisters and, and really be involved in local pro-life efforts in order to build each other up? I think the first thing you should do is give her a big hug and say, I'm so happy for you. And you know what? I'm going to be here with you. I know you may feel alone right now, but but I'm going to be here. And here's my number. And you call me 24-7-365 because I'm going to be here for you. And I'm happy for you and I want to support you. And I want you to know that you don't have to end the life of your child. Mm-hmm. You can walk through this together, whatever you choose as far as giving the baby up or keeping this baby. I'm here and I'm going to help you. And then you have to carry through with this. So the difference between women who carry their babies in a difficult situation and the women who don't is despair. And the culture mm-hmm. is breathing despair. You can't do it. Mm-hmm. You're not good enough. You're not blah, blah. They breathe despair. And we have to be breathing hope. We have to be breathing joy. We have to be breathing life. And I, I say that and, and mean it. I know that these situations are tough. Believe me, I spent a couple of years it's a child sexual abuse counselor, or I mean examiner for the uh, local uh, county prosecutor's office. There are some horrific stories, but there's a human being behind that story that doesn't need to be told to despair. She needs to be surrounded with people who love her, who care about her, who really honestly will be there for her. She may need a place to stay. She may need a job. She may need vocational training. She may need 
just a friend. And we've got to look and be able to see those, those things. But there's one other big thing, and that was brought out by a study that was done by Chernet. And they asked women who had chosen abortion a bunch of questions. And one of those questions was, how long was it between the time that you got your positive pregnancy test and the time you decided to abort? What do you think? It was 24, 24 hours. And between, wow. and between getting the positive pregnancy test and carrying out the abortion, what do you think? It was a week. So what that means, and about a third to maybe more than a third of women were actively attending church at the time that they decided to abort. Now, that means she's going to be at church once. Who is the woman in your church that she's going to talk to? And, mm. and I, I mean, maybe she could talk to the pastor. Maybe she could, but the overwhelming likelihood is she probably won't talk to the pastor. So can we identify in the church one woman who can keep her mouth shut because gossip kills? And if we can identify one woman in the church before anybody's pregnant, to say, hey, look, if you're facing a, cri- a, a crisis pregnancy, come talk to me. Here's my number. And, and it's got to be someone who's respected. But we have to identify someone so that if she's in church once, she can know, I could, I could always talk to Jane. I, I could possibly talk to her. And that, you know, that at least gives her some human connection to somebody who won't encourage her to despair. Because that's what the abortion industry feeds off of. They feed off of despair. Mm-hmm. So with that, I'm just thinking more practically, is that something that, you know, that churches do periodically, like at the beginning of worship? Jane, can you stand up so everyone can see you? Okay, raise your hand, Jane. Numbers in the bulletin. <laughs> you put it in the bathroom. Like, how do you practically do that? Do you like... I'm chit-chatting with, you know, the young woman. I'm like, by the way, if you ever have a crisis pregnancy, let me know. <laughs> feel free to let me know. <laughs> I don't know. I feel like to an extent, I think a lot of times people struggle with like practically, yes, what you describe is it, it makes sense. But practically, how do you get to that point where people know who that is, that person is that you can call and reach out to and so forth? You know, I think it's going to be different in different churches. I, mm-hmm. I can tell you that the women's social networks, people know who to go to for an abortion. They know mm-hmm. which women are going to supply them with drugs to mm-hmm. abort. So I think it, it almost has to be, you know, what's your social network in there? Is it appropriate yeah. to say, you know, to, at a huge church with some assistant pastors, hey, you know, mm-hmm. Jane's the assistant pastor's wife. And if you ever need to talk with her about right. something, you know, I, I think it's going to be different. But I do think we have to, we have to talk about it you know if right like maybe that's part of it is we don't discuss it in conversation and so it becomes mm-hmm. this major hurdle to actually start that conversation then when you find yourself in the situation because it's never been actually discussed mm-hmm. in your hearing or maybe we don't wait till a crisis pregnancy to build yeah. supportive networks of oh. christian women <laughs> oh, that's a great idea <laughs> <laughs> yeah well, I have a question as a mother of daughters, at least one of whom who's interested in the medical profession. What would you say to a young woman or I mean a young man as well, but a young woman especially since those are our listeners who is as enchanted by the miracle of birth as you and is considering going into obstetrics or midwifery or something 
Would you even recommend it these days, given how politicized the career is? Oh, absolutely. I mean, if you want to go into medicine, there's nothing better than OB-GYN. It's the most... <laughs> I'm a little biased. It's the most wonderful... It's the most wonderful opportunity to be a part of a, a significant part of a growing family's life and, uh, and to be able to help them and to be able to help women. Um, so, so how would a young, just getting started person in, in obstetrics navigate these minefields? Well, that's why we have the American Association of Pro-Life <laughs> <laughs> There you go. <laughs> Thank you for the, for the uh, commercial uh, opportunity. No, please tell <laughs> us what you, what you do and how you make this world better. Yeah. So, so what we do, one of the things we do is to have a national conference every year. Our next conference is coming up in February, and we offer a full-ride scholarship to medical students and doctors in training and residency to come. We cover your airfare, your conference costs, and your hotel so that you can come and meet other OBGYNs who are, and not just OBGYNs, also family medicine docs and doctors who deal with reproductive health issues so that you can meet doctors who, who are making it and who are inspiring. And you can get information about how to think and speak about this issue. Because as a pro-life medical professional, whether it's midwifery or OBGYN or family medicine, you have to know the pro-abortion arguments better than the pro-abortion OBGYNs. And so yeah. what we equip you to do is to be able to give an evidence-based defense. You can say, well, you know, I, I hear that you want to suggest abortion in this case, but what evidence do you have that doing an abortion actually improves the life or health of this woman? Well, here's yeah. my evidence that using perinatal hospice as an option when there's a life-limiting diagnosis, women actually do better than when they're just knee-jerk offered abortion. And if you can do that, if you can master that, that conversation, then there really isn't much that can be said. Because we don't, American Association of Pro-Life Obedience is not a faith-based organization. We're interested in what does the medical literature say about what abortion does to women. And abortion hurts women, increases the risk of preterm birth and subsequent pregnancies, increases the risk of suicide, drug abuse, and hospitalizable depression, even... When you look at the population of women who have unwanted, unplanned pregnancies, and you take that population and compare women who give birth in that situation versus women who abort, the women who are abort are at increased risk of suicide, drug abuse, and hospitalizable major depression. Abortion doesn't solve anything. And I've been involved with some other research looking at Medicaid databases and looking at women who abort their first pregnancy as opposed to women who give birth. And it turns out that if you look at the sequence of events in their life, women who, who abort a first pregnancy tend to go on and abort and abort. A third of women who abort the first pregnancy never have a live birth. Hmm. Well, that's really sad. So, so talking, just talking about that and talking about it from an evidence base and, and challenging gently, respectfully, but challenging the assumptions that are inherent, unfortunately, in OBGYN right now that pregnancies of disease and abortions the cure, you know, challenging that, that mantra with good evidence. That's what we equip our members to do. And if you're going to go into obstetrics, gynecology, or midwifery, you have to be able to master the literature in that field. Mm -hmm. So do your homework, I hear. 
Do your homework. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Good advice. I will share that uh, with any young person who comes to talk to me about that. Don't be afraid yeah. of the field, but do be prepared to do your homework. Yep. So I'm sort of curious just because <laughs> I don't know if it's just our current situation in in society right now. I don't know. But I've been talking with some of my friends. And right now, I have two good friends who actually work at universities, and they are feeling a lot of discouragement. And <laughs> is it realistic? Like, I feel like I've even heard questioning of like, is it even realistic? Can somebody go through mm. advanced, you know, all the way through grad school, all the way through med school and hold honestly to their belief. Are you able to, is that mm. realistically still possible? Are there programs where you can have a conscience-based difference and also evidence-based as you mm -hmm. pointed out, but is it, is it possible or is the politicization of the university culture so far spread? I don't know. I'm just curious. And I, I've been like, I feel like I'm I'm living a little bit in a bubble compared with them because my work <laughs> culture, my mm -hmm. work sphere is not at all theirs since they work in universities. And I'm like, oh, I'm surrounded by Lutherans and I don't <laughs> seem to be as concerned as you. Yeah. <laughs> but I, I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah. What are your thoughts? I need to stop. You tell me. <laughs> you <No>. you think, <laughs> do you think it would be possible? For Christianity to spread in Rome under Nero or under mm. Trajan or under Diocletian, is it possible? Should we just throw up our hands and say, well, you know, politically, it doesn't look good. You get fried, literally, and, right, you know, yeah. on the torch. What, what does that look like? <laughs> yeah. but, but it's more an issue of saying, has God called me to this specialty? Mm. And mm. if he has, then he'll keep me. And if he hasn't, then mm -hmm. I will find something else. But but again, I don't think we should say no to a good gift to God, which is, I think a career in obstetrics and gynecology is a good gift to God. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we should say no to that out of fear that somehow we're not going to make it. I mean, mm -hmm. if it's a calling, if it's really a calling, um, mm -hmm. then, then he will keep you in that calling. Mm-hmm. I'm not minimizing the pressure. There's a lot of pressure. Yeah. 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 Well, I think having, I mean, this is just very outsider, outsider view, but having a good tribe of people around you in your church and even online communities, I think is just very helpful when you have attacks coming at you from all kinds of places. Having a tribe you can lean on is just kind of crucial with, with mm -hmm. a lot of vocations today, not even not even medical field, but a lot of a lot of vocations where people work outside of the church, like, I don't know, most people, <laughs> like the four of us, uh, yeah. you know, that's uh, really helpful to have. And I want, I want to ask you for people who don't maybe have access to medical literature or can't decipher it because they don't have that kind of background with all of this misinformation that's coming around that we get bombarded with. Are there resources for like regular people like me to be mm. able to reference one we're trying to have a conversation and our points are just being shot down by somebody with an opposing view, are there resources we can access to help us with this evidence-based knowledge and, and resources to combat the misinformation that we just keep hearing? Oh, I'm so glad you asked. <laughs> <laughs> you can go to our website, 
Um, hey. <laughs> AAP, A is in Alpha, A is in Alpha, P is in Papa, L is in Lima, O is in Oscar, G is in Golf. So AAPLOG.org. And you will find a bunch of resources under the page that says resources, the, the tab at the mm-hmm. top. Committee opinions, practice bulletins. Yes, they are mostly written on the level of physicians or medical practitioners, but also lay people can read them and understand. And mm-hmm. also follow us on social media. We have a lot of information that we share all the time, including our abortion myths versus facts document, which is really good. So Excellent. yeah, please join us. Well, we will include links to those in the show notes for sure. And yeah, probably also on in our Facebook group. I have, I, I, I guess, a big question. Aaron's oh. question sort of reminded me that we had yet to ask this. We have had oh. most of our conversation with saying sort of within the pro-life bubble, right? Mm-hmm. How do we as church ladies support one another? Mm-hmm. How do we, you know, combat the, the misinformation in our own minds? But what do you do when you're talking with somebody who is pro-choice, and nothing you say is probably going to change their minds about that position. How do we have those conversations with people who may never agree with us? Well, I, that's like half of what we do. We exhibit <laughs> at some pretty hostile conferences. And so oh. when approached by an OBJ who is pro-choice, I'd say, well, you're pro-choice, I'm pro-life. But what about informed consent? What about actually telling women what the consequences are? Could we agree that every woman should get the information about what abortion does to her? Mm-hmm. And can we agree on informed consent? Can we agree that babies that can survive being separated from their mom should not be killed, but rather it's delivered? Can we agree on that? I mean, those are some pretty basic things. Could we agree that it's really wrong to deliver a living baby and then sell its body parts? Can we agree that that's really awful? You know, there are things that we could agree on, even if even if people are pro-choice. What a lot of times, pro-choice can be as nebulous a term as pro-life. All right. <laughs> so yeah. when you say when you say pro-choice, what is it that you're saying? Are you saying that women should have the ultimate decision as to whether or not they're going to allow this human being to grow in their womb? Because that's really what a lot of pro-choice people are saying. Okay. Should they have that choice after the baby's born, when the baby keeps them up at night? Should they also <laughs> be able to decide at that point whether or not this baby should continue to live? You know, at what point do we say, yes, we as a society know this is tough, but we're going to surround you with support? And I think one of the things that we might be able to come to some mutual agreement about is supporting women so that they are tempted to despair. Mm-hmm, yeah. Again, looking back, why are women despairing? Well, they're despairing because the guy is gone. Um, they're despairing because they feel like they can't they can't make it alone. And by the way, they were never meant to make it alone. Yeah. So how do we solve those problems? How do we solve the problems of it's poverty that drives a lot of women to despair? What can we do about that? So yep. again, I think we can approach our pro-choice colleagues Assuming that they are human beings that have compassion on the woman who's in a difficult situation. They, mm. they <laughs> allow for solutions to that problem, which involve killing human beings. Oh, we don't. We would both like to solve those problems. So can we think of problems, 
solutions that do not involve killing human beings mm-hmm. and work together. I, I think right. we can have some fruitful conversations. Mm-hmm. Dr. Harrison, I have a question. This is a bit of a curveball. So in your experience as an OBGYN, what is a story that you would tell somebody who is maybe in a situation with an unexpected pregnancy? What is a story that you could tell as an OBGYN that has filled you with so much hope that you would share that account with the woman who has come to you in anxiety to sort of give her that same measure of hope? Wow, that's a, I would have to think about that a little bit. If it were a situation where she's been told this baby has a life-limiting diagnosis and isn't going to survive afterward, I would tell her this story. I'd tell her my story, which is mm-hmm. that I had a son who was born with a congenital heart disease, and, mm-hmm. and he died. And then I got pregnant again with another son, and the ultrasound showed same congenital heart disease that he was going to die. And, you know, my OBs knew very well my position on abortion so that they did not offer that to me. But I'm sure had it been somebody else, they would have offered to terminate that boy's life. Two ultrasounds, yep, had the same problem. And he was born and he didn't have a heart problem. So sometimes medical tests are wrong. They're, They're human. They... Medical tests are not 100%. So give some room mm-hmm. for, for mercy, you know. If it were somebody who was anxious about being pregnant, I would ask them, have you ever been really, really anxious about something? And then, like, after you sleep and you eat and, and you take a break, then you come back and the problem isn't quite as bad as you thought at first. Mm-hmm. Well, learning about pregnancy when you weren't expecting it it's kind of like that. You got to take a deep breath. You, gotta, you know, eat, sleep, give yourself 24 to 48 hours. Think about it, you know, and don't feel pressured because a lot of decisions are made, like I said, in, in, in that research, 24, within the first 24 hours. That's deer in the headlights decision making. Yeah. And yeah. you don't have to be deer in the headlights. This is an irrevocable decision. You know, you're not going to go back and undo it. So give yourself some time to really think it all the way around. Give yourself some time to get over the shock and so that you can, you know, like, like breathe. And, mm-hmm. and that's what I would, that's what right. I would encourage her to do. Oh, that's a, yes. Thank you. And that's wonderful advice. I, I've probably shared this story before, but I've told my oldest daughter, she knows this truth. When I found out I was pregnant with her, I bawled in the bathroom because it, yeah, it was a, curveball out of uh, mixing metaphors curveball out of left field it was not what i needed or wanted in my life right then but she has been such a gift yeah Um, and yeah yeah, all it took was a good cry and a good night's sleep and i woke up the next morning and i was like okay i'm a mom let's do this (laughs) yeah so i love what you say about that 24 hours because it is such an important thing to just catch your breath. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, I'm so grateful. I'm going to be crying here in a minute. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, 
as we're wrapping up our time, Dr. Harrison, is there anything else you would like to share with our listeners, all of these Lutheran ladies in our community about uh, these women's health issues or Roe v. Wade or just, you know, encouragement we enter midterm elections, all these all of these things that are all boiling around us. Spicy. <laughs> right. Yeah. I think we've got to remember we, we really do serve a big God. And he's really able to help us. And I think now is no time to shrink back from being vocally pro-life, but pro-life with compassion and pro-life with, you know, understanding, but still not shrink away from not killing human beings in the womb as a solution to a social problem. So hang in there. Please keep working. This really is probably one of the most important elections the country has ever faced in its entire history. So uh, I'm just hoping and praying that that it will turn out well and not badly. Mm -hmm. Okay, before we close, I just have to say I opened my email and the evening edition of the Virginian Pilot, a newspaper I can't seem to unsubscribe from. um, (laughs) The headline is Biden in speech aims to keep abortion top of mind for midterms. Oh, right. That was happening today. So Mm. I forgot. You know, you you talk about us serving a big God. This conversation could not be more important right now. Yep. Yeah. So thank you. (laughs) Thank you for having me on. Yes, yes. And we will share the links to Applog in the show notes for ladies to find all of the wonderful resources that you guys have there. So Dr. Harrison, thank you so much for joining us today on our podcast. Thank you very much. Ladies, please join us in our Facebook group. We'll be sharing some additional posts about all of this as well, especially as we head into midterm election season. I'm sure all of you are already tired of all the political ads. I know I am, but we're going to talk about some stuff because this is an important conversation to have. Join us there in our Facebook group, the Lutheran Ladies Lounge. You can also follow us on Instagram at Lutheran Ladies Lounge. We'll have similar conversations happening there as well. If you aren't on social, but you'd still like to get Lutheran Ladies Lounge in your email inbox, you can sign up for our e-newsletter. Find out how to do that in the show notes for this episode, or you can just send us an email, lutheranladies at kfuo.org, and we'll make sure to get you signed up for that e-newsletter. You can find all of our episodes at kfuo.org slash lutheranladieslounge, or on your favorite podcasting app, or on the KFUO radio app. You're listening to the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast. I'm Sarah. I'm Erin. I'm Bree. And I'm Rachel. KFUO Radio and the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast are underwritten in part by Wicking Vicar. Visit them online at wickingvicar.com. Views and opinions expressed on the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast may not represent the official position of the management or ownership of KFUO Radio, the Lutheran Church, Missouri Synod. The Lutheran Ladies Lounge is produced by KFUO Radio and available at kfuo.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Don't forget to hit that subscribe button and leave a review for us, too. If you love the Lutheran Ladies Lounge podcast, consider financially supporting our producer, KFUO Radio, so we can keep doing what we do. Find out how at kfuo.org give.